more than one way to skin a cat and more than one way to give a track. And so there's all kinds of ways to get out. If you just uh, think about it and, and ask God to, to open up uh, you know, opportunities and events to where you can actually get the gospel out and, and he will enable you to. So let's think of that. Think of that this week. Okay. So amen. Yeah. Amen. All right. Um, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 10. I think uh, we've taken care of most of the uh, uh, preliminaries that we needed to. And, of course, after the service, we'll be seeing the uh, announcements. And, and, uh, and then you could be doing the signing up things and the different things that you can for, for that. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 10. <clears throat> for therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men especially of those that believe. Lord, thank you so much for this uh, small series here. We're looking into um, the heresies of uh, a man-made theology that uh, paints you in a bad light, in in an awful way. And so, Lord, I pray that you help us to uh, learn the truth, to be armed with the truth, to to be able to... uh, uh, know your word and to be able to combat falsehood wherever it's found and see where people are twisting or, or making the word of God try to say what it doesn't say. And, and so, Lord, I pray that you, this, this is an awfully uh, complex and difficult kind of a, a study here, but it's something that is very pertinent. So, Lord, I pray that you give us um, understanding, give me uh, clarity about things so that I might be able to uh, get it across to others, and Lord, I pray that you just be our teacher and our guide. We need you tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Irresistible grace. This is the series of latter times ministry. We started with verse number one of First Timothy chapter four and talked about the latter times. This is what is going to happen, what's going to take place, and so some of the pitfalls, some of the things that we're going to be uh, facing, and we certainly are in the latter times, and one of the things that we deal with in, in the latter times is Calvinism. And the reason why we're into that is because that verse that we ended up with, we started with verse number one down to verse number 10, and it talks about Jesus as the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. One of the particular theological pitfalls in these latter times is Calvinism. Um, In the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. When it says doctrines of devils, that means uh, the truth that is twisted, the truth that is, that is uh, moved, the truth that is, that is amended to fit things that are really not God's heart, God's mind, God's word, okay? So, and that's where we live. We live in a time of, of the truth being twisted, and, and such is our study tonight. Among other dangers and pitfalls and potholes in these latter times, the heresy at hand, at hand is a particularly sinister and detrimental one. Uh, churches, individuals have been derailed by getting into these heresies, these falsehoods, these uh, uh, incorrect uh, uh, positions or, or um, uh, um, incorrect viewpoints of God's word or his will or his, his uh, decree or his sovereignty and, and it's ruined them. It's, it's affected churches, affected uh, Bible colleges. It's affected believers in, in, in very negative ways. Uh, we're living in a time where basic Bible truths are defiled and reprobated by this ever-growing heresy of Calvinism. And <clears throat> it's an offense to a loving, a caring, and a fair God. In this flawed theological system, we pointed out the five points of Calvinism. We started with verse number 4. Uh, or verse number 10 of chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, which says uh, that uh, Jesus is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. And that dealt with, it's not a limited uh, atonement. It's an atonement for the world. He's the Savior to all men. So we kind of started in the middle of that tulip, but then <clears throat> being that we're going through this, try to hit it all, we went back to uh, the T of the tulip. Anybody remember what the T is? Total depravity. That uh, man is totally depraved, so, so dead you can't respond. And uh, yes, we are dead. There's nothing that, uh, good in ourselves, and that's what the Bible teaches absolutely. But the, the definition of Calvinism puts man in a situation where he cannot respond <coughs> to the offers of God. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. 
total depravity. U is unconditional election. Meaning if uh, uh, the election of God, salvation is given to people who are the elect upon no condition at all. It's unconditional. It's not because you believe or not because you choose or not because you do anything good. Of course, you can't do anything good. You can't save yourself. And we know that. That's what the Bible teaches very clearly. But they get into the situation where they claim that there is no condition for being elect. But the Bible does teach that. We went over that. It's belief. Belief is that which brings about salvation. Uh, belief is the condition for election. But nonetheless, that's a false position. Is uh, unconditional election. The L, we started with limited atonement. And tonight we're in the uh, I part of it, which is irresistible grace. Let's try to identify irresistible grace uh, not putting words into the Calvinist's mouth, let's go ahead and, and ask them and let's see what they say about what is their definition of irresistible grace. You know what grace is? Grace, uh, we were just going over that the other day in uh, our uh, men's Bible study, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. It's a good, good uh, uh, definition or you know, thumbnail sketch of what grace is. Grace is unmerited. You don't earn grace. <clears throat> it's gratis, it's free, it's provided. You just take advantage of it. It costs Jesus everything, but it's free to me and it's free to you. It's nothing you can pay for. Grace is opposed to works. It's opposite of works. Works is what you earn. That's what you know, you've deserved. Grace is what you don't deserve uh, or getting out of what you do deserve. And that's uh, grace. Grace is, is uh, the, the goodness of God that is available for no goodness of us. It's God's offer of his, his uh, pardon, his forgiveness, and that's grace. So irresistible grace, you could just by the, by the title of it, irresistible means you can't fight it. It's irresistible. It's got such a force that when it comes, you have to succumb. You have to believe. You have to surrender to this grace of God when it comes to a lost sinner. Irresistible. So their words, let me just read from a Calvinistic website called Got Answers. Uh, in this website, we find this overview. And they're, they're trying to be fair and honest with the, with the doctrine. So this is, their, again, again, it's their words. When I give you my words, I'll tell you these are my words because I'll comment on this. But this is what they say, I quote, Irresistible grace. The doctrine is also known as effectual calling, meaning whoever God calls, they get saved. God's effectual on that. He doesn't call anybody that doesn't get saved. Everybody he calls, every arrow he shoots makes the mark and, and does what he uh, um, uh, designs it to do. If he calls, that person responds. So it's called effectual calling. It's also called efficacious grace, meaning it, it's effective. It's, it's, it's uh, uh, not for nothing. It's not grace that's just offered that could be rejected. No, no, all the grace, this grace that God offers to a sinner, it does the trick. <clears throat> you know, the, uh, uh, the, the Mountie, the Canadian Mountie, always gets his man. Dudley Do-Right always gets his man. Well, efficacious grace or irresistible grace, when this grace is presented, it always ends up in salvation. The person gets saved. That's what they mean. Efficacious call of the Spirit. It's also called transformed by the Holy Spirit. Wherever the Holy Spirit works, that person gets transformed. Every time. Not, not uh, uh, maybe... Not try, not God wishes. No, no. Whatever, wherever God decides to put this grace towards a sinner, that person gets saved. I'm trying to uh, embellish that, but the, the, the terms that are used are irresistible grace or effectual calling or efficacious grace, uh, efficacious call of the Spirit. Simply, I'm, I'm reading now their, their definition. Simply put, the doctrine of irresistible grace refers to the biblical truth that whatever God decrees to happen will inevitably come to pass even in the salvation of individuals. 
That's what they're saying, that this is a biblical truth. It's not. It's not a biblical truth. We're going to see the, the difference. We're going to see the, the little twistings, a little uh, 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 departure from the truth, from the Bible, that you've got to be very aware. You've got to be perceptive to catch that. But nonetheless, they say it refers to this truth that whatever God decrees to happen will inevitably, inevitably come to pass, even in the salvation of individuals. Now, what I say about this so far is uh, this grows into the necessity of having a worldview that is fatalistic. You know what fatalism is? It's where something's going to happen, it's going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it. It had to happen. I had a, 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 what do you call that when they're not, a foster, a foster brother. When I was a teenager, my parents took in teenage foster kids and so there was a kid that was about my age, um, and uh, uh, he was real, uh, kind of like some of you guys, <laughs> real boisterous, you know, as a very, you know, uh, 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 expre- expressive and physical and whatever. And uh, so in the, in the house, um, what we would do is we played... Uh, Ball with a bat and a and a like a little soccer ball in in the basement. We shouldn't have been doing that, but we did anyway. He hit the the the, the light that was above in in the basement and it busted it. And all this glass comes every, down every on, on everybody. And and he says, "It's the funniest thing in the world." He goes, "Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. It had to happen." <laughs> and so and every time that something would happen with this kid. Um, he would he would jump up and say, "Hey, no problem. It had to happen." He spilled milk on the table when we're eating. Don't worry, don't worry about it. It had to happen. Everything it just had to happen. You know, it's like uh, whatever's going to happen, it was just destined to happen. There's nothing you can do about it. It had to happen. Well, that's kind of like what this kind of comes to when when the Calvinist looks at the sovereignty of God. You know what I mean by the sovereignty of God? God is in charge. God is in control of everything. And everything that God determines comes to pass. Everything. No matter what it is. No matter what it is, God decreed it to be, and then it was. And then it came to pass, just like God decreed it to be, because it has to happen. Because God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. So, like I say, this kind of grows into this fatalistic um, idea, because God's decrees... Uh, they're overwhelming. God decrees everything. God decrees all, and nothing can be without his decree. Everything that happens is because God designed that to take place. Everything. Everything. Now, if you're thinking about this, if you're following me, you're, you're saying, we got some problems here, preacher. Yeah, exactly. we got some problems. But that's what it is, is to look at the sovereignty of God in the Calvinistic viewpoint. God decrees all, and nothing can be without his decree. Uh, carried out by his will. The illustration is used of the number of raindrops falling on a lawn on any one particular afternoon. The number of raindrops are exactly what God ordered. Not one more and not one less. So how many raindrops falls on on your lawn? You know, yesterday we had some pretty pretty, uh, heavy rains uh, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, and midnight, it was raining pretty good. You know, how many drops of lawn of, of water fell on your lawn yesterday? Well, I don't really know, but you know what? God decreed every single one of those to fall, and not one drop more or one drop less than God decreed to take place. When I say God decrees everything, <clears throat> that's to emphasize everything. There's nothing that takes place without God's <coughs> decree. He determines it to happen, and it happens. If there were one random... Mo- now, this is a quote, not from, not from this website, but another Calvinist <coughs> says this. If there were one random molecule roaming the universe at any time, God would not be sovereign. 
Okay, you understand what that means? Everything that takes place. It doesn't matter how small, how big. Everything, everything, everything that takes place. Because God is sovereign, meaning he's in control of everything. He makes everything happen exactly as it happens. It's because it's decreed by God. Another uh, example of this very thought is every dust particle in each sunbeam is ordered and it's fulfilled by a sovereign God. There are no, I quote this, there are no slight possibility of accidents of anything at any time, at any place. Everything that happens, nothing is by chance. Nothing is by accident. You get the picture? Are you following me? Are you, are you kind of coming along with, the, with the, the mind picture here? So um, it's a kind of a fatalism. Is everything that happens, no matter what it is, is God decrees it to happen, and so therefore it happens. Okay, let me continue with the, the uh, quote from God Answers, this Calvinistic site. They go, at the heart of this doctrine <clears throat> is the answer to the question, why does one person believe the gospel and another does not? Is it because one is smarter, has a better reasoning capability, or possesses some other characteristic that allows him to realize the importance of the gospel message? And so they're, they're asking the question and trying to answer their own question. Why does one person get saved, the other person doesn't? Is there anybody that has more understanding or, you know, they're, they're closer to God or something like that? They're, they're uh, uh, more godly or they're more, you know, why does one person accept the gospel? And when, when the gospel's uh, broadcasted as the, the sower that went forth to sow the seed, everybody hears the word of God. One person believes, another person doesn't. Why is that? And, and so they're trying to uh, uh, beg the question or answer their own question by saying, does somebody have a, 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 a foot up? But no. That's, that's not it at all. It's not to somebody's advantage, but nonetheless, that's what they're asking. Um, does, is there somebody that has, possesses a characteristic that allows him to realize the importance of the gospel message? Or is it because God does something unique in the lives of those whom he saves? If it's because of what the person who believes does or is, then, in a sense, he's responsible for his salvation and has a reason to boast. So the Calvinist looks at it and says, well, one person gets saved, the other person doesn't. If it was anything that had to do with that person at all, then he could boast. See, I had something to do with the salvation. And so therefore, there you go, uh, salvation is not of the Lord, it's of me. So, so, and you can't boast. And we know that Ephesians says, lest any man should boast. We can't boast because it's not our good works, it's not our efforts, it's not anything we do. Okay, so, so, <clears throat> so they're, they're saying... You, you can't have, it's got to be total, everybody's dead, everybody can't respond, and the only, the only people that ever get saved is God says, I'm going to bring you the gospel, and I'm going to somehow get to you more of a gospel or more of a, a, a grace than others so that this person, it's irresistible, they must respond. It's because God did it, not because you. Because if <clears throat> it was anything that we had to do, whether it's, our works or our choice or our faith or whatever, then you can, you can say that you're responsible for your salvation. And then you have a reason to boast. Let me stop right here. Think with me. How about those entering the ark? Here's Noah that preached for 120 years, 110 years or so. He's building this ark, and he was a preacher of righteousness. And the Bible says eight people entered into the ark. But he was a preacher. He was offering the, the gospel, offering the, the salvation of God. There's coming a flood. And he preached and preached and preached. And, and, and nobody accepted except his own family and those uh, from his extended family. Eight people entered into the ark. Let me ask you something. If there was somebody, one of those eight, well, they were actually the builders. But if they had a friend down at Joe's bar and he says, you know what, I believe you. Uh, you know, <clears throat> you've got a life behind what you're saying and, 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 you know, just knowing what happened in the past and, and we know Methuselah, we know some of those older guys that they knew Adam and, and, <clears throat> and they, they believed the word of God, they believed the warning of God and they were to get on the ark because they chose to, they would still have nothing to boast about on the ark. You know why? Because the ark was provided for them. They didn't build it. 
God designed this thing, blueprinted it, had Noah build it, and here it is, get on the ark, get on the ark, get on the ark. And so if somebody says, okay, I'll get on the ark, and so they get on the ark, and okay, they did by their choice, they chose to get on the ark. Could they boast? Absolutely not. It was salvation that was provided for them. They didn't have to work for it. They didn't do it. They just had to get on the ark and they would be saved because it was something that was provided by God and they just said yes. They took advantage of it. And that's what salvation is. Believing and responding yields safety. That's it. But still, it was without any reason to boast because the boat was provided for them. And such it is with just about any illustration of salvation that you want to use. Um, How about... Uh, no boasting allowed in the brazen serpent. You remember, they're, they're bitten by snakes. They're dying. Moses said, God, what do we do? He says, take this <coughs> uh, 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 brass or, or uh, uh, not brass, but what do you call it? Uh, um, brazen, what is that? Bronze. Bronze serpent, put it on a pole, put it up in the midst of the, of the camp. Anybody that's bitten, all they got to do is look and live. They need to believe me enough to say, Okay, here's the, here's the solution. Here's the, the, the cure. God's cure is to look and live. So here's the person. They're bitten by a snake, and, they, and they're worried about it. And they remember what Moses said. Okay, God's solution, God's cure is to look to the snake. And they look, and they're okay. And somehow the, the, the poison uh, dissipates. If they, if they didn't have enough faith to believe God and look, they would die. And so God says, all you got to do is look and live. Okay, so here's somebody, they're bitten by a snake, and they, they remember what God said, and the, the salvation offered, which is just a, a picture of salvation of Jesus Christ, the one that would be lifted up. And Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me, just like Moses in the wilderness. That's me. And it's a picture about Jesus. So if you're in the camp, you're bitten, and, and you believe God, you look, and God cures you, you have anything to boast of? No. It's not because you're so smart. It's not because, you know, your blood, you know, uh, uh, you know coagulated with God's, you know, uh, uh, cure. No, no. You have nothing to boast of. The person who looks and lives, they, they had to realize God provided this salvation. But you know what? It was up to them to choose to look or not. It was their choice. And even though they did choose had nothing to boast about at all in the, the example of the brazen serpent. Abel's offering. Remember, God instructed these boys to, okay, if you want to please me, this is what you do. You bring an offering, and this is what it should be from the flock, and, then, and God laid the whole thing out. We don't have uh, <clears throat> that, that conversation that God had with them, but obviously, because we know the result of it, when, God, when they brought theirs, and Abel knew exactly what to do is what God ordered. And here's Cain. He's doing whatever he did. And did, did Abel have anything to boast about? You know, Cain might have because, man, he worked in the fields and he brought these fruits and he brought these flowers and he brought this presentation to God with the sweat of his brow. Man, it took a lot. But you know what? Abel just brought one of the lambs. They killed the lamb and he brought the, the lamb. And that was, did Abel have anything to boast about? No. No, none whatsoever. And anybody that receives Jesus Christ, the lamb that taketh away the sin of the world, they have nothing to boast. Do you have anything to boast about coming to Christ when you did? No, you nor me, nobody on earth. When they say who is worthy and all of heaven is silent for 30 minutes. The guy weeps because he realizes there's not one person in heaven who is worthy at all. Not not responsible at all for their salvation. But that's a picture of salvation. Naaman the, the, the Syrian, remember when he was cured of his leprosy? And Elijah says, uh, or is it Elisha says, go dip in, in the Jordan seven times. And he's mad. He thought the man of God would come and there'd be some big, you know, Jimmy Swagger, you know, meeting. And he'd ah, touch the thing and, and he would be cured. He says, this is foolish. I'm going home. And his, his servant said, hey, wait a minute. If he'd asked you to do some hard thing." Would you not have done that? He says, yeah. So it's pride, right? Oh, yeah, I guess it is. Let's just do it, okay? So he goes and he dips one time, two times, three times, seven times. He obeyed what God said. He comes up. He's clean. What a picture of salvation. 
clean of his leprosy. Okay, uh, did Naaman have anything to boast about? None, not at all. Didn't even make any sense, did it? But that's exactly what God said. You just follow me by faith. You do what I say. I have salvation for you. And that's what he did. It had, he was not responsible for his salvation. And he had nothing to boast about. Um, the wedding garment that Jesus said. Here's these people that go into this, this wedding that was provided for them. At the door, everybody wear this, wear this, wear this. It's a tunic or some kind of a robe that everybody wore that showed their, their uh, 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 acknowledgement to, to the uh, generousness of the, the owner of the, of the banquet, the, the, the king or the, the nobleman that put on this wedding. And there was somebody that came in there without a wedding garment. He says, man, why don't you have a wedding garment? He didn't have nothing to say. He says, out. What a, what a picture of salvation. It's provided for you at the door. You want to get saved? It's provided for you. It's the, it's the, the righteousness of Christ. It's got nothing to do with you, nothing to do with me. You put that thing on. Uh, do you have any reason to boast? No. No. It's provided. That's salvation, folks. Thief on the cross. He repents of his sin. He says, God, I have nothing to bring you. I'm dying. But I repent. I realize you're who you are, who you say you are. Please remember me. He bows himself before the king. Did that thief have anything to boast about in his salvation? You, you know what the difference between that thief was and the other thief? This guy chose Christ. The guy didn't. Everybody that takes the offer of salvation has absolutely no reason to boast. But that's what they're saying. They're, they're, they're saying that, oh, wait a minute, if it's because of what the person who believes does or is, then in a sense he's responsible for his salvation. Oh, poppycock. That's, that's ridiculous. That's, that's really dumb. I'm trying to use different words than stupid because I shouldn't be using that word. So anyway, it really is. It's, it's got, it, it makes no sense at all because every, every picture of salvation, there's nobody boasting. There is nobody. Don't give me this boasting stuff. Nobody boasts about receiving that garment and putting it on, the robe of Christ. I've got nothing to say about this, but I've got the robe of Christ on. I've got his righteousness. What are you going to boast about? Uh, lest any man should boast. You can't do that. It's God's grace. Amen. And Okay, let me finish with their, with their explanation of what irresistible grace is. They go on to say, however, if the difference is solely that God does something unique in the hearts and lives of those who believe in him and are saved, then there is no ground for boasting and salvation is truly a gift of grace. So you notice how they say, okay, this is how a person gets saved. God does something unique in the heart of that person. Something that... Can you find that in Scripture? Let, let, let's go to that Scripture. Okay, let's, let's, uh, chapter and verse. The, the unique thing that God does to an elect person that he doesn't do to an unelect person. It's not in there. It's not in there. It's, it's extra biblical. You remember when we were talking about... Yeah, it's, it's dealing with the truth, but then twisting it just a little bit. Not much. If the difference is solely that God does something unique in the hearts and lives of those who believe in him and are saved, then there's no ground for boasting and salvation is truly a gift of grace. Of course, the biblical answer to these questions is that the Holy Spirit does do something unique in the hearts of those who are saved. Not biblical, okay? You should, you should uh, uh, have, have caught that one. That's, that's not what the Bible says at all. They go on to say this. Remember, it's defining irresistible grace. They're saying, <clears throat> the reason this doctrine, this doctrine is called irresistible grace is that it, is, it, is always, it always results in the intended outcome, the salvation of the person it's given to. Everybody that God gives this grace to, this special grace, this unique chance, this, <clears throat> this extra, he, gives, he doesn't give this grace to everybody, just to the elect, when there's a person that's going to get saved, God, God points that person out, gives them this kind of grace. It says, when God does that, it always results in the intended outcome. That person gets saved. They have to get saved. 
To understand the doctrine of irresistible grace, it is important to recognize that this is a special grace given only to those God has chosen for salvation, his elect. And it's different from what is known as common grace, which God bestows on both believer and unbeliever. Where? Yeah, that's a term you don't find in the Bible. It's a doctrine foreign to the word of God. It's gotten, it's, where, where in the world did this come from except pff, taken out of the mind of the one who's trying to figure this whole thing out and you got to make up doctrines. You got to make up truth. There's, there's what does he call it? <clears throat> Special grace. And then there's common grace. There's no such, there's no such uh, distinction in scripture. Come on now. That's, what world? Where is this coming from? You know, you would think that they're going to be at least trying to stick with the Scripture. No, no, no. They have to depart from the Scripture to try to uh, uh, figure this thing out. The Bible says, hey, how about this, this verse? He's not pointing this out. I am. Titus 2.11. For the grace of God that brings salvation, this kind of grace, you know, the grace that a person gets saved to, the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to only the elect. Only that person, to which, that's, that's special grace. Everybody else gets common grace. No, 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 no. All men. Got nothing to do with the truth of the scripture. Nothing. Again, more extra biblical words and doctrines to force the unnatural puzzle to fit together. It's not in the Bible, folks. It's just not in the Bible. Okay, but... You get the idea. The, the Calvinist says this is irresistible grace. This kind of grace, the, God, the grace that God gives, everybody that ever gets saved, they're the elect, and it's a special grace. not common. It's special, and it's that kind of grace that when God gives it, the person has to get saved. Why? Because God's sovereign, and he's effective. And whatever he does, he, he accomplishes. Uh, uh, you know, he always gets his man, the, the Canadian Mountie. God always gets his man. It's irresistible grace. <clears throat> so to summarize, I'm not quoting anymore. I'll finish with a quote. To summarize, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to portray it right or to give us all an idea of what we're talking about, irresistible grace. Irresistible grace is just that, irresistible. It's futile to resist against. When God convicts, one is powerless to fight against it. You will fail. Here it is that God wants you saved and he presents his grace, his love, and, and all. you're going to be overwhelmed. You will fail to resist. You cannot resist. You will get saved. If God wants you saved, you'll be saved because he decreed it. This is merely a warped perspective of sovereignty, folks. That's what it is. When, when somebody wants to uh, build up this, this you know, uh, ivory castle of sovereignty and to get to that kind of a position where, you know, uh, resistance is futile. Yeah. Sovereignty doesn't mean <clears throat> the authority can't make room to allow for opposing forces or wills in his universe. Granting the free will of man is an example of this in the garden. God put the, 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 the free agents in there, and he says, I'm not forcing your hand. You can have everything, but don't eat from this tree. And he, he laid out the law, and he didn't make them. He didn't make them one way or another. He said, this is, I've done all this for you, and now for you to acknowledge, for you to, to love me, to, to respect me, to honor God, do not eat from this tree. You can eat from all the other trees. The, the uh, modern-day atheists, I don't know if you ever follow that stuff. It's really, I've never seen a, a group of people that were so angry at something that's not there. <laughs> something that they claim doesn't exist, but they're so bitter against God. Uh, but they, they say he doesn't exist. <laughs> right. Uh, my lady doth protest too much, I think. But anyway, um, the, the atheists go nuts with this one about the garden and, you know, the, the tree that was put in. This is what they say. No kidding. This is what they say. Basically, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Well, then why didn't God just put the forbidden tree on an inaccessible mountain with a, with a giant fence around it that they couldn't get to it? Or how about even on another planet 
Maybe God could put that tree on the moon and then man could never get to it and so then he could never fall. Why didn't God do that if he's so good? That's ridiculous. Because God was not interested in man doing what he has to do, what he's forced to do. He was interested in man choosing to love, honor, and fear him. Is that too complicated to understand? Uh, Romance between lovers makes this point plain. You know, you know what I'm saying. You know, if you, uh, the guy in uh, Boston a year or two ago who captured his neighbor and put her in the basement of his house in the city and chained her in that house for what was it? Uh, was it seven years, eight years that she was in there? And until finally somebody uh, came along and heard somebody crying out and what's going on? And then it was investigated. The guy was found out that he had forcibly, uh, he, he had, had <clears throat> uh, detained her forcibly for uh, seven or eight or ten years, something like that. She had a child during that time <clears throat> and was raising her child in this ba- basement, never saw the light of day because her, cap- her captor loved her so much, didn't want to let her go. <laughs> yeah, right. The guy was in prison waiting for sentence and the stinking coward hung himself, couldn't face the, the sentence that was coming. The jerk. Is that too much for church? <laughs> yeah, amen. Amen. Good. Let's, let's, yeah. Yeah, amen. Hey, folks, you know, that's not love. No, no. That's a, when, when you force somebody to do something that they have to do, that's not love. And God, hey, listen, God understands that. Come on, he's, he's sharper than you and I. Just because God acknowledges man's free will to choose doesn't mean he is not sovereign. Both can exist together if God so decrees it. I am sovereign and I'm giving man a sovereign will. I'm not touching that. It's his choice and I'm allowing him to do that. You know what? God can do that and he does. And that's exactly what we have in reality. Now, instead of trying to um, disprove false claims of irresistible grace, what it's not, how about we merely look into the Holy Spirit's work of his conviction, his conviction of man and man's response. And then we'll come to some conclusion as to whether or not God's works are irresistible. You know, I remember first getting saved, and I remember so grateful to be saved, the, the uh, conviction that I endured prior to coming to salvation, it was, it was a, lo- a few years. But those last six or eight months, it was unbelievably intense. It was getting worse and worse and heavier and heavier. And my sin was becoming exceeding sinful. And I knew that I was not on the right side of God. And it was getting worse. And, and the conflict in my own heart was worse because I wanted what God wanted, but I, I didn't want, I wanted my sin more than I wanted what God wanted. And so therefore there was this battle inside me and I was not ready to wholeheartedly seek the Lord, not yet. And, and that conviction got worse and God pointed out my sin and pointed out how far I was from Him. And it was just terrible and I tried and I failed and it just got worse and worse and that, that conviction and I remember when I did get saved man it was like you know the Pilgrim's, Pilgrim's Progress when the, the big you know uh, thing uh, heavy burden fell off Christian's back rolled away that's what I felt I mean it I mean it I felt like whew, Where is that? I don't have that anymore. I don't have the guilt. I don't have, I love singing that song. A new name written down in glory. When I came to Christ, I may have said this several times. Man, when the Lord convicted me, he just wouldn't let me go. I had to get saved. Not really. Not really. Because it's not irresistible. Folks, the grace that brings salvation, it appears to all men. But it's not irresistible. God doesn't make you. God doesn't make the elect. It's not an irresistible grace. Let's see, how does God work in conviction? 
how does God work with men? Okay, well, he reasons towards a rescue. God pleads with sinners to choose. Isaiah 1.18, God says, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow, and we know the verse. I remember uh, Danielle was asking me about this verse, about somebody saying, well, this doesn't really mean salvation. It means the, the nation of Israel. Yeah, I know it could be applied to this and that, but you know what? It certainly can be applied to salvation. Everybody that ever gets saved, this is what God says. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. God wants to, to uh, commune. He wants to reason. He wants, he wants you saved. He wants the lost saved. And, he's, and his desire, he, he reasons towards a rescue. Ezekiel 33, verse number 11. <clears throat> Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? Ezekiel 18, 31. Cast away from you all your transgression, God says, whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die? God says, I have the solution. I have salvation. Why are you going to go on and avoid what I have for you and go on in your own peril and in your own condemnation and die? For I have no pleasure, this is what he says, I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. He says, I don't want to see you die. He pleads, and by the way, if you're here and you've never been born again, that's what God's pleading to you. This is his words to you. To you. I know there was, there was Israelites that we're talking about here, but this is his heart to you, to the lost. Because God pleads. He allows rebellion, although it's not his desire. See, <clears throat> the father allowed the son to go in the story of the prodigal. You remember Luke chapter 15? And here's this dumb kid comes to his father and says, I want my inheritance now. I don't want to wait till I get older. I want it now. And I'm going to spend it on whatever I want to spend. And, and the father said, okay, here it is. Hope you learn. He takes the, the money and he goes into a far country. And you know what? The father knew. Don't you tell me he didn't. He knew exactly the misery that this kid was going to face. He knew exactly the end of, of that pathway that he was on. He knew that he was going to be hurt. He knew that this was going to grieve his son. This was going to steal his, his, his uh, decency and and his self-respect and his, is going gonna, is gonna to take everything. It's going to devastate the kid. He knew that. But you know what? He let him go. I hope you turn. He did not go out into the far country to get the kid. By the way, parents, that's really good. Children have to learn. Everybody has to learn on their own. You cannot protect them and protect them and protect them and protect them and protect them all their life. And so they, they never hurt. No, excuse me. The way of the transgressor is hard. And, and they're going to face that hardness. But that's in God's plan. To bring, them to, to, to bring them to repentance. But the father allowed the son to go and come back. There was no compelling. He didn't make him. He didn't go out to get him. It was the kid's choice to come back. Luke 15, 20, and he rose and came to his father. But when he was yet a, way, a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck. That was my heavenly father. He wanted me to come for years, and I didn't. I was hurting myself. But you know what his heart was? His heart was with me. I mean, he was looking for me every day. I could see that old man getting up every day, saying, Honey, maybe he'll come home today. Who knows? And he'd go out to the, to the gate. And he'd look down the road. He's not there. He's not coming. He, his heart was with the kid. But he didn't make him come. He, he waited for the kid to choose to come back on his own. See, that's, that, God allows rebellion, although it's not his desire. But he wills salvation. For the lost. Folks, you know what that means? He, his will is. This is his will. His, his sovereign will. He wills salvation for the lost. 
Would that question his sovereignty if that's his will for people to get saved and then they don't get saved? Well, yes. If the universe is a mechanical robot that's all designed to do God's will, and if that's how it goes, where every, every little drop, every little uh, you know, dust speck, everything is God's will. He decreed everything. Everything has to go according to what he planned. And then if something doesn't go according to his plan, remember what that, that guy said, that Calvinist, if one random molecule in the universe exists, then God is not sovereign. Oh, come on. That's a, that's a warped picture of sovereignty. Yeah, if, if all that God does is, is make a, a, a giant clock, a robot, to do exactly his will, then, yeah, that would question his sovereignty if it doesn't work. But that's not what he did. That's not what he did. He created man, and, he, and he's placed them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with, with glory and honor, and he, gives them, and he gives them a will. He says, choose. You can do this. You can choose to love me. You can choose to come my way. You can choose to reject. It's up to you. But he wills salvation for the lost. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 4. God who will have all men to be saved. That will means that's his will. Not just I will do something, but it's his will. Last will and testament. This is what God's sovereign will is. His will, his, his desire, his intention, his, his, his uh, 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 pleasure is to have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Second Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count in slackness, but as long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God didn't make a bunch of robots and say, okay, you have to do... No, no, he created free agents and he wills them. He wants them to be saved, to come to repentance. But many die, many reject. Does it, does it take the sovereignty of God into question? No, because God don't make robots. Well, you know, he, he does and whatever else in, in creation, but for man... Wow, that's, that's a little bit different, isn't it? In teaching about the work of the Holy Spirit concerning the unpardonable sin, in the past lessons we, we talked about what the unpardonable sin was. You know, Jesus said, you can sin against me or, or this or this or this, and you'll be forgiven. But if you sin against the Holy Spirit, you'll never be forgiven. And, so, and that, that really uh, uh, stirred up a lot of... Uh, commotion and, and, and confusion because people are saying, well, what is the unpardonable sin? I don't want to do that. What is the unpardonable sin? You'll get a charismatic will look at you and say, if you say tongues are of the devil, then you're committing the unpardonable sin and you'll never be forgiven. That means you're going to go to hell, folks, because if you're never going to be forgiven in this life or in the life to come, that means you're doomed, eternally doomed. So what in the world is the unpardonable sin? Well, you got to look at what the Spirit's job is. The Holy Spirit's job is to work with the with and present the truth to convict the sinner, to showcase the Savior, but there's a limit to his patience and his work. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3 says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. You know what that word strive means? Wrestle, uh, a deal, pull, uh, try to influence. Uh, uh, it's talking about the conviction that, that God wants a man to go his way, and he's going to try to influence. He's going to try to, to uh, do what he can to bring that person to safety and to, to uh, uh, God's blessings, and he's striving with man, but it's not going to continue forever, forever, forever. It's not forever. The, the uh, striving, the conviction of God is, has a limit has an end. That's what it's saying. It says that uh, my spirit shall not always strive. It's this striving that constitutes his call, that conviction, his grace presented to all men, his heart shown to the lost. But folks, the, the truth is men can resist. Hey, we're talking about irresistible grace. Men can resist. Don't give me this stuff irresistible. It's not irresistible because man does strive with, with God and they do, they do resist him. What is sinning against the Holy Spirit? Well, fighting against the Spirit's influences and conviction because this is what the Spirit of God does. He convicts. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. 
of how much sore punishment suppose ye he shall be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and accounted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Okay, it's grace. It's God's grace that he's trying to show. He's trying to give. He's trying to, he's trying to offer them to man that, that men, as, as it says there, that men are resisting. They're, they're uh, doing despite. Spirit of God wants you to come. And you say, no, I don't want to go. <clears throat> doing against the Spirit. And by the way, notice it says, the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified. This is a person who has the atonement of Jesus applied to them fully. This limited atonement stuff. No, no, no. He was sanctified by this blood of the covenant. It was for him too, except he's rejecting it. You, did you get that? That's just a little bit of the limited atonement, but we're not even there. We're in a different one. So anyway, he's done despite unto the spirit of grace. Is resistance futile in this example? Where this lost person, it's, it's the spirit of God that it says, spirit of God is, is doing this, is wooing him, is trying to get them to come, to, to repent, to receive God's goodness, and they're doing this despite the spirit of grace. No, I'm not going to come. No, I'm not going to go. And they're, they're fighting this, this lost person here who's falling into the, to the hands of a living God, as the next verses say. Uh, is this, this man's fight, is it futile? Resistance is futile. You're, you're coming anyway. You got a tractor beam is going to pull you in and nothing you can do about it. Is this man's resistance futile? Come on, talk to me. It's, a, it's, I'm not, it's not a trick question. This man in, in, the, in the passage, the man that's, that's fighting against the, the blood of the covenant, where he says, hey, I don't need that. I don't need what Jesus has for me, what he did on the cross. He's, he's a scoffer. He's rejecting. He's resisting the spirit of God. He's saying, no, no, no. Is, who's, who's winning in this, in this passage? It's the man. Resistance is not futile. His resistance is effective. He's resisting, and he's really putting off the, the pardon. Resistance pays off, if you want to look at it that way, because the Holy Spirit leaves you alone, because his spirit shall not always strive with man. There is that, that wooing, that drawing, that, that, that love that is shown, the offer of grace, the offer of grace, the offer of grace. That's what the Spirit of God does. He convicts. He brings that, that person to conviction, but doesn't happen forever. There's a time where, okay, the Spirit of God says, enough, enough, enough. I get it. Here's the line. I'm not drawing anymore. I'm not wooing. I'm not working anymore, any longer. That's where the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit comes in. Resisting the influence of the Holy Spirit. Look at in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. He says here, the end of a message, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did. So do ye. Okay, okay. So let me ask you this question. Who among us have resisted the work and the conviction of the Holy Spirit before we ultimately surrendered. Okay, did you get, you get that question? Because I'd like to see a, a show of hands. Who among us has, have resisted the work and the conviction of the Spirit of God in our lives before we ultimately surrendered and got saved? Let me see your hands. Ooh, you resistors, huh? Look at that. That's most of the congregation. I know, I don't know, it's me too. It's me too. I, <clears throat> I resisted. So a person can resist the Spirit of God, but thank God we all got saved because the Spirit of God was, was uh, more stubborn than we are, huh? <laughs> Amen. Thank the Lord for that. But we learned that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the, 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 the Spirit's conviction as Paul kicking against the directed offense of the Holy Spirit when he got saved and he met Jesus and said, it's hard for you to kick against the prick. What he's talking about is it's hard for you to, to fight against that, that force that is convicting you, that is bringing you to conviction. And, and, and Jesus said, it's painful, man. It's hard. You can't hardly do that. I mean, it's, it's 
paint. Why? Because the Spirit of God was working on him, was convicting him and convicting him. And Paul was saying, no. And Paul was saying, can't be. And Paul was saying, kill the Christians. And Paul was continuing in his blasphemy of the Spirit of God, saying no and resisting and, and going against despite the Spirit of grace. But the Spirit of God somehow persisted and Paul got saved, but you know, there's some people that don't. The people persist. And thus, the Spirit of God finally retreats. He says, okay, not forever. There's a line drawn, and so I'm going to retreat. That's where the sin comes in that never, 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 ever, ever, ever can be forgiven when it's continued to the point of divine surrender where God then gives up and says, okay, there's a line. You crossed it no more. I'm not going to convict anymore. I want to tell you, I've seen that. I've seen it take place. I've seen it take place. The people that I've prayed for and I've prayed for and I've prayed for and I've prayed for and I've watched. I've watched them fight the Spirit of God. It's, it's evident. You know, you can kind of see what's going on in their heart. You see the... the, 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 the uh, uh, the eyes and the, and the facial expression. You, you know, you heard that white knuckling thing, you know, where an invitation, somebody grabbed the end of the back of the pew and just hang on, and, and, and they're fighting. You could tell them, you could, you could see what's taking place. If you could open up their heart and listen to what they're saying, they're saying, no, no, I'm not gonna. I know that's the, the Spirit of God, and I know He wants to be saved, but I'm too stubborn. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna. And I've, I've seen that, and I've seen the, the evidence of a person bitter and fighting God desperately until something happens. All of a sudden, you're in a, a Holy Spirit-filled service where God's taking the, the, the Word of God with a man of God and, and proclaiming it, and the Spirit of God is working on all sides. And here's that person. Nothing. No conviction. No fight. No resistance. No striving against this. No, no. Peace. They're, they're lost. They're still lost. Except they've come to a place where they're not fighting anymore. What happened? What in the world? What took place? What took place? The Spirit of God stepped back, retreated. The Spirit of God finally surrendered and said, no, no more. I will not always strive with man. And listen. If a person fights against the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit removes himself, that person is doomed because you can't get saved until you get conviction. Unless the Spirit of God is drawing you, you're not going to get saved because that's exactly what the, the Word of God says. See, <clears throat> the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not just, not just resisting the Spirit of God, which many of us have done, remember? Yeah, me too. But you know what? Thank God, the Spirit of God got victory in that one. And I was the one that surrendered. You were the one that surrendered. And we're saved today. Thank the Lord. Amen. Um, but the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a man persisting in that opposition. That's why Jesus said, Matthew 12, 31, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. You see... The difference between someone like Paul who opposed the Holy Spirit. Remember, he was convicted. That's what Jesus said. He's fighting against the pricks. He's, he's fighting against the, the, the pain of conviction that the Spirit of God was giving him. Uh, and, and, but he got saved. But some who fight against the Spirit of God who never get saved. Is that the forgiven surrenders before a faithful crossing of the line that God warns us of? Whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him. <clears throat> Folks, you've got to understand, there's lines drawn. The Bible clearly teaches the limit to the offer of salvation. We quoted that verse, Genesis 6-3. The Lord said, my spirit shall not always, continually, continually, forever, forever. No, no, no. My spirit shall not always strive with man. Proverbs one twenty four. I know this is talking about wisdom here, but it can be applied perfectly to God and his relationship to his creatures. He says, because I have called and you refused. 
I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But ye have set at naught all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. I also would laugh at your calamity. I will mock <clears throat> when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me. God, where are you? I need you now. But I will not answer. I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. I'm going to be hiding at that point. What happened? That's the Spirit of God who retreats. Hosea 4.17, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. God says, hey, work with him and, and, and rebuke him and try to get him to repent and, and try to deal with him, deal with him, deal with him. Then finally, he says, hey, he's crossed the line. Let him alone. I'm not going after him. What happened there was the Spirit of God is no longer working. Hosea 5, 6. They shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek the Lord, but they shall not find him. He hath withdrawn himself from them. God withdraws himself. He no longer works. He no longer convicts. That's what you find in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, which is the society in which we live. There's so many that have fallen into this trap. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. It says here, these people that get into these sins, <clears throat> these pride, they're, they're not thankful, they're, they don't acknowledge God, and God tries to win and tries to show and tries to be good to them, and they, they say no, and they, they resist, and they, they uh, oppose, and they, they uh, despise what God's working, and, and they're, they're the ones that are, that are doing despite under the spirit of grace, and you know, finally God says, okay, I gave them up, let them go. Verse 26, for this cause... God gave them up unto vile affection, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. Verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. God gave them up. He gave them up. And he steps back and gives them over. He says, okay, no more. No more. Gave them over to reprobate mind, to do those things which are not convenient. Did you ever deal with, with those that were in this category that... It seems like they're not even, you can't even reach them. They're, they're in a whole different category. You, they're, they're, you know, a normal, decent person would at least listen. They're not listening. They, they can't hear. God has withdrawn himself. When a man crosses that line, when God removes the influences of the Holy Spirit, then that man has no more chance of being saved. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he says the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. John 6, No man, Jesus says, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. That's that conviction. That's the Spirit of God working. And unless the Spirit of God works, no more, that person is not coming. He cannot come. He, he will not come. <clears throat> By the way, and that's the proper perspective of this twisted verse that the Calvinist wants to say, oh, see, therefore, it's a special question. No, no, exactly where I'm placing this is, is, is the truth of this verse. <clears throat> see, the truth is you can fight against the Lord and win. Resistance is not futile. It's not irresistible. But if you win in this battle, you lose. We thus conclude about the grace of God presented to men in conviction. Three things. Number one, it's compelling and powerful. Yes, the Spirit of God working in, in lives of people, man, it's powerful. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit. It gets in. It's, it's the Spirit of God's conviction. Boy, I know that firsthand. I know how miserable I was, how God got in, and I didn't want him in, but he was there. He went home with me. I know that. And his, his spirit is compelling and powerful. But number two, this grace that God presents to men in conviction, it's granted to all, not a few. It's not a special grace here and a common grace. No, no, no. It's all who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. It's that grace, one great, not this kind of grace, that kind of, no, no, the grace that we're talking about gets a person saved, it's presented to everybody. And if there's anything that we know about God is that he's not a respecter of persons. All men are loved, are yearned over, and are, are, are moving to God. God loves you, and he loves the lost. Number three, 
this grace of God presented to men in conviction can be resisted. Don't you believe, don't you believe this heresy, this garbage that's, that they're putting out there, irresistible grace. No, no, God says you're, you're supposed to be saved. You, there's nothing you can do about it. You're going to come because God is effective. Go, come on. You've got to understand. You've got to just look at what God has made, how he's made man, and the choices that he's made, and, and you understand. See, the Bible says in Ephesians 4.30, <clears throat> Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. You know what? The Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit can be sinned against, can be resisted. It can be quenched. The Holy Spirit can be ignored. The Spirit of God can be disregarded in your life if, the, if conviction is coming and you want to say no. You want to put your fingers in your ears and say, no, 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 I'm not listening. I'm not listening. I'm not listening. You can fight. You can, you can discourage the Spirit of God. <clears throat> you can win against the third person of the Trinity, against God, but you lose. Second Chronicles 30, verse 8. Now, be ye not stiff-necked, as your fathers were, but yield yourselves unto the Lord, God speaking to sinners, and enter into his sanctuary, which he hath sanctified forever, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. Folks, here's an example of some who stubbornly fought and died in his wrath. They went to hell like their fathers. This is who they were. They were fighters against God. They were, they were ignoring God's, God's uh, influence and his, his conviction in their heart, their but according to God, they were responsible to resist or to yield. He says, don't do that. Yield. Surrender. And by the way, so are you. You're responsible to yield to the Spirit of God. See, God's grace isn't, if we get anything tonight, God's grace is not irresistible. Wake up. You don't want to resist your pardon. Really, come on. Wake up. It's your responsibility to yield or to resist. Go ahead. What do you say? Every head bowed, nobody looking for just a moment.